Welcome back to a slightly late, but hopefully just as good, uh, episode 47 of Herpetological Highlights. I'm Ben Marshall, and co-hosting, as always, is Tom Major. What do we have, people? What do we have? What do we have for people uh, this fortnight, Tom? We're talking about iguanas. Not just any type of iguana, though, right? No, not bush iguanas. But nope. not rock, no, rock iguanas, in fact. They are rock iguanas. <laughs> That's exactly what we're talking about. Iguanas we've got our rock. wires crossed here. Yes, we're talking about rock iguanas. The genus Cyclura. Usually sway side to side, sit in chairs that don't have four legs. What? Rocking iguanas. Oh, my days. No, so uh, these are, yeah, like I said, genus Cyclura. <laughs> and uh, I'm not even going to address that. It's just terrible, Ben. And then it's uh, just been sandbags. Yeah, yeah. no, yeah. This was an episode suggested by a patron. Um, so thank you very much, Brandon Barassa, um, who recently attended the IUCN Specialist Working Group on iguanas. So hopefully this will live up to your expectations. Um, realistically, you probably know a lot more about iguanas than us, but we're going to delve into some papers about rock iguanas and um, yeah, see how we get on. Hmm. Well. Should we just get straight into the first paper then? Because I feel like a lot of the intro of these papers is talking about what the rock iguanas are anyway and where they live, so... Yeah, let's do it. Yeah? Mm-hmm. So, up first we have conservation of the endangered Sandy K. Now, it's not Sandy K, it's Sandy Key, isn't it? But it's spelt K. Ooh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I'm going to go with that. Pretend I know what I'm talking about. Conservation of the endangered Sandy Key rock iguana, Cyclura uh, Rileyi cristata, invasive species control, population response, pirates, poaching, and translocation. And this is a paper by Hayes, Escobar, Fry, Fortune, Walaluski, Tuttle, West, uh, Iverson, Buckner, and Carter. Published in Herpcon Bio, right? Yeah, yeah they're both bio in bio. 2016. So uh, I just did a quick Google. You're completely correct. It's pronounced yeah, key. Yeah, that's why I powered through. <laughs> You'd be amazed how many people pronounce it K. <laughs> All those, but I, to be honest, I've only ever heard one person say it out loud. Um, and that was Joe Walaluski, who's on this paper. So I'm just going, that's, that's, I vaguely remembered that. So I was just running with it. And he said key. <laughs> He said key. <laughs> okay. Pretty sure. I mean, if he didn't, yeah, well, well, then I'm just thinking. Of then I'm misremembering, and it's all a complete mess. The Florida Keys. The Florida Keys. It's all coming into focus now. Yeah. Beautiful. So uh, yeah, Cyclura. There's about. Well, I'm going to say about because I never like to say anything too definitively when it comes to species delimitation. But there's ten species of so-called rock iguanas, and um, yeah, they're found so-called. on so-called. So called, yeah, <laughs> so called. Well, they are called that rock iguana, you say? Yeah, but they also, I mean, it's like you know, you can call it a rock iguana or a rock iguana. It does not mean you're going to catch it hanging out on the rocks all that often. I mean, um, that's true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, none, none of the photos I've seen of them have they actually been on a rock. So, I mean, maybe it's because they look like rocks. I don't think that's the case though. No, it's because they rock. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, good. So uh, that's what I was getting at. Yeah, I see. Yeah, but you, you could have used. You could have said something along the lines of like, you know, oh, they listen to Ozzy Osbourne or, you know, they, uh, I don't know, they've got mad hair, but you went for, they've got a chair without 
a leg or something. I just didn't even understand <laughs> hey, it. Man, I, was... I didn't even understand the joke. Oh, <laughs> <I> was... <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, it was terrible, wasn't ben. firing on all cylinders, I'm sorry. the worst joke ever. No, it's okay. I'll stop bringing you about it. So, um, anyway, they're found on islands in the West Indies, which are... I mean, the West Indies is a pretty broad catch-all term for islands in or bordering the Caribbean Sea and the Bahamas and the Turks and Caicos Islands. So um, mm. we're kind of like to the southeast of Florida, loads of islands. And uh, yeah, that's where Cyclura are found. And it's a genus of pretty big lizards. Usually they're, or not usually, but often they're endemic to just a single island or a small group of islands. And um, interesting little bit of um, etymology. The generic name Cyclura is derived from the two ancient Greek words kouklos, which means circular, and aura, meaning tail. So remember we had Ouroboros, same same root of that. Uh, anyway, basically it means circular tail, and it refers to the thick ringed tail of all Cyclura. So they've got like thick oh. thick ring-like bits on their tails. And that's That's cool. I like that. It is cool, actually, yeah. Someone, you know, they were thinking when they named a genus. And, uh, yeah, we're focusing in, in this episode, on the species from the Bahamas, which is Cyclura rileyi. Yes, and we're going to very carefully but deliberately sidestep any discussion about whether there's one species, three species, one species of a subspecies. I'm not sidestepping it. I'm hitting it full on frontal, and I've got strong opinions. (laughs) No, that's not. All right, take it away then. No, no, we'll get. It. I mean, oh no, he's backing down. I'm not, it's too scary. I'm isn't not it? backing down. <laughs> um, I'm going to be belligerent as I always am. Now, I think um, I actually read that 2000 <laughs> paper where they said they weren't separate subspecies. Um, yeah, which was by who was it? Malone et al. I love that we're getting into this yep. first. We'll get this out of the way. So yeah, they used some mitochondrial DNA and they looked at whether or not. Well, they basically just looked at the kind of phylogeny of. Um, so it was all was it? It was all iguanas, wasn't it? Um, was it all iguanas? It was like maybe. Most, I, I didn't really. I'm not going to say all. I'm going to say most. I only really focused on the bit about cyclura. But basically, um, well, the the paper title says it's um, cyclura. Oh, does it? Yeah. Fair. Maybe it is then. So uh, basically. They've been in the Bahamas for a while, but there's no mitochondrial DNA differentiation uh, along the genes that they looked at among the three designated subspecies, because there's Rileyi Rileyi, Rileyi Cristata, and Rileyi Nucalis. Yes. So what they're suggesting is that it's been very recent that their three populations have been separated into sort of discrete areas, and um, they question whether or not it's justifiable to call them three subspecies. Um, they do say, though, that they think there needs to be more analysis using genes which evolve more rapidly um, to discern whether or not there's particularly discernible characters for the three subspecies to see if mm. it can be justified. So they kind of like, they say with their evidence, they're all the same, but it's not impossible that with more evidence they could be different. And I think functionally, I mean, the people who wrote these papers are obviously, you know, the world's leading authorities on this species. And as we'll see, they've done a lot for these species. So in yeah. my opinion, if they feel the need and if they feel it's justified to put them into subspecies categories for the status of, you know, for the purpose of conservation and, um, you know, maintenance, why not just do it? There's really no harm in it, is there? So that's where I stand on it. 
Well, the only possible harm, I mean, there was there was that debate a while ago about uh, conservation, uh, whatever uh, priorities influencing how species were split or not. And I very much fell on the side that you shouldn't be doing that because that's opening up uh, splitting or lumping species based on external, potentially politically influenced reasons, right? So I suppose the, the downside of if you did split them into subspecies, I mean, subspecies is sort of fine, but let, let's take it a step further and say if you did split them into species and treated them separately that way, you might end up over... Um, uh, what's the word? Over basically giving them too much attention conservation-wise, which could be used somewhere else on a species that has you know, equal threats. Yeah. But you're treating these species as separate, so you're using, say, triple the conservation effort or money or resources, whatever, when really you could put more effort into protecting one of the really healthy populations and then sort of work on a, on a slightly less intensive basis on the other ones. It, it, it's all about prioritization, basically. Mm. Um, in this case, I mean, yes, there's a lot of work done, but in terms of the grand scheme of how much stuff costs, they seem pretty streamlined, these conservation uh, conservation efforts. Yeah, they do. I think I, 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 do, I do fully appreciate and take your point on that one. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, I think this is a case where it's, uh, justified but yeah there is certainly a risk as you say that um it's a good perspective that it could be that you know often i mean the main reason these are all separate is because they live in separate places and they look different right yes um so you know well, and they require i think critically they require slightly different management tactics to conserve too yes they do yeah um but yeah i, I could definitely see an example where it really wouldn't be worth maintaining mm. two separate areas with this level of intensity when as you say you could use that money to come to you know to spend on an entirely separate biological unit so yeah there is an argument for that yeah for sure um but yeah like you say i think in this case it's uh it seems to be pretty well justified um i think so yeah so like we said we kind of uh, alluded there there's three subspecies of Cyclura rileyi, as we're calling subspecies. Um, Cyclura rileyi rileyi and Cyclura rileyi cristata, which are the two we're going to focus on in this episode. They're both critically mm. endangered. And then there's also rileyi nucalis, which is only endangered. So we're going to completely ignore that one. Sorry, mate. <laughs> You're not endangered enough. All right? Yeah, just, just an idea of numbers. That last one's around 10,000 individuals, whereas Cristata's 1,500 individuals, and uh, Rileyi itself is perhaps as low as 600 individuals. Right. So, in terms of numbers, I mean, that's a big difference between the endangered, quote-unquote, and then the... What do you, do you say critically endangered? Yeah. So, um, yeah. Rileyi, Rileyi, and Rileyi Cristata are critically endangered. Yeah. A tenth for the population of the other one, I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and for both... Even though it's worth mentioning that even that one has had huge uh, habitat reduction. Hmm. Yeah, they, they were all... So, they all used to be on more islands than they are now, and on bigger yeah, islands. They've, not, essentially, they've all been... Not 0.2% of its former range. Yeah, I think that's that... what they were saying. I think that goes for all three of them. Um, yeah. 
that that figure is actually, I think, the figure they use for all three. And yeah, they've um, they used to be a lot more widespread, and they've all basically essentially just been pushed to the fringes of their um, range. You know, basically, they only now exist on tiny islands where humans aren't doing too much mucking around. Um, which you know, it's kind of a story for many of these um, insular reptiles. But um, yeah, yeah. So the first one we're going to talk about is um, Rileyi Cristata. And this one is also known as the white key. White. I'm gonna to have to start saying key now. The white key iguana. Mm. I'm glad you corrected that though. That's exactly the kind of classic error that I could go through a whole podcast making and then <laughs> just feel like a silly sausage at the end when someone points well, it out. Well, it's easily done, isn't it? Yeah. Because I mean, it's not spelt like key, is it? Like, do you remember when we used to call chytrid chytrid? Just kidding. <laughs> it's the other. It's the other way around. Um, Anyway, or is it? Or is it? Who knows? So anyway, this is the white key, white key iguana. So I'm tempted to just go through everywhere I've written the word key and put key instead of k. Um, two out of three <laughs> we've said are critically endangered. This is one of them. And uh, yeah, as as I was kind of just describing more broadly, it used to be found on larger islands, but today it's confined to the sandy key, um, and and sort of. This group of conservationists who wrote this paper... Actually, one thing I want to say before we get into this one in detail. This whole issue of Herpcon Bio Monograph 6 is... What is it? Herpcon Bio um, 11 Monograph 6? I can't think now. But um, it's all about iguanas, right? So if you've got a special interest in iguanas, there's about 20 papers. And it's not just Cyclura. There's other genus genera which are described um you know the conservation of there's some interesting stuff about iguanas and tourists iguana behavior you know some really cool other stuff so if you're interested in iguanas this whole issue is as all hercon bio papers are completely free to download and read and um yeah i think if you are into iguanas it will provide you with many happy hours of entertainment so just a quick plug for that um all iguana all day all iguanas all the yeah. time yeah, I mean, I, I've i only read two of them, which are the two that we're going to be discussing here. But I did have a brief look. And, I mean, we could easily do another episode um, on a different kind of iguana just just from this issue alone. So, yeah, it's pretty cool. And as with all Herpcon Bio things, they're generally pretty um, pretty well put together and, like you know, generally a nice read. So, yeah, check it out. But, um, yeah, the story for these white key iguanas pretty much began in or at least for these guys, began in 1980 when Dr. John Iverson, who is one of the authors of this paper, spent a couple of days on Sandy Key, which is a 14.9 hectare island. Um, it's quite That's small. It is small. That's real small. Small. I mean, that's tiny. Yeah, it's like, what, 15 football pitches? I have no idea. Something like that, maybe. Um, and yeah, it's small and it's low-lying, so the highest point is about 8 metres above sea level. It's made of this soft limestone rock, and it's got patches of sand interspersed among the rocks. It's pretty heavily vegetated, but sort of low-lying vegetation. And when Dr John Iverson visited the island in 1980, he saw tons of iguanas, including loads of babies. And they were just having a wicked time being iguanas, um, just running the show, really. And um, he didn't see any invasive vertebrates. But he did see some Australian pine trees, which uh, I think kind of stuck in his mind. Anyway, that was in 1980. Fast forward to 1996, and Dr. Iverson's back. This time, he's got a squad of other iguana folks with him. And unfortunately, the site that they 
witness when they get off the boat onto the island is very different. There's invasive mammals everywhere. The Sandy Key rock iguanas are on what appears to be the brink of extinction. There's rats, there's mice, there's even a raccoon. And um, this led to the agreement that they would try and eradicate the mammals. Even a raccoon. (laughs) Can you imagine? (laughs) I... Oh... This raccoon. But anyway, at this point, they set out and they think, right, we're going to eradicate these mammals and we're going to conduct some long-term monitoring of the iguanas on the island. And this paper pretty much details that journey. Um, yeah. Which, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really fascinating read. It, uh, you know, so this is, we are, we're now in 1996. The story begins. I think we should talk about the raccoon, Ben. I think we should talk about this raccoon. Nobody knows where it really came from. But what we do know that it was probably having an unbelievably detrimental impact on the poor iguanas. There were iguanas with raccoon bite marks in them. Uh, They're known to eat the iguana eggs. Raccoons get pretty fat, so I can imagine they're eating a lot of iguanas. Um, They even had, so they did a little bit of radio telemetry on the iguanas to try and get an idea of uh, what was killing them, what was eating them, their survival, that sort of stuff. And one of the radio transmitters came back with raccoon teeth bite marks in them. So, raccoon definitely wasn't just chilling eating berries or cactus or Australian palm. It was going after the iguanas. Yeah, and there were some grisly scenes as well. Those, you know, iguanas with their their neck bitten out and then their skin peeled back. You know, it's classic sort of was, smallish carnivore was, feeding. Well, that's what raccoons do. They want to send a message to the other iguanas. <laughs> These filthy little bandits. So uh, yeah, basically, the raccoon had to go. But where did they say it came from? It either jumped ship. Yeah, it either. Which is interesting. Why it would even be on a ship? Well, it probably had like, second thoughts I about the cruise so. it was on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Realized it wasn't going to be able Imagine to pay that. the bill and I, just bailed. My theory is this: right, it got it managed. It was pretty obviously it's a very wily raccoon. Yeah, so it basically smuggled itself. It was a stowaway on a cruise ship. Right, it's having the time of its life. But then it got forced to walk the plank by angry sailors when they discovered it hiding in the boat. Mm. So what does it do? It doesn't give up. It swims after being made to walk the plank. It swims and it finds white key and it thinks, this is paradise, right? Paradise. I can eat all these iguanas. I can can terrorize them by eating their skin only and leaving the rest of them. I can own this place. I think this this raccoon kind of models itself after Tom Hanks in Castaway. It just oh, I was thinking uh, uh, Colonel Kurtz from Apocalypse Now. <laughs> <laughs> that which which is that the main character? No, that's the guy who he's going to find uh, oh, in the depths okay. the one of made, uh, yeah, yeah, okay. Cambodia. Uh, was it what? Yes. Yes. Is it Cambodia? Okay. Um, yeah, so either way, whichever one, this raccoon, you know, it's getting getting on with business. And it could have been there for quite a while, really. There's no way of knowing. Mm. Um, but yeah, anyway, when they got to the island and when they first counted in 1997, there was only between 112 and 168 individual iguanas left. Um, and so the, the raccoon had to go. And obviously, you know, eradicating an animal isn't very nice. Um, it was really wily, though. It took them a long time. Um, they kept on seeing its footprints, but they never actually saw it. Um, and this wily raccoon managed to survive for quite a long time. But then in 1997, a visitor to the island saw it was dead and it obviously taken some poisoned bait. So, um, yeah. The raccoon was eventually gotten rid of, and the... But what a life it led. But what a life it led, you know. 
a lonely life, but I think probably quite a productive life, at least for the last little while. Um, mm. The same method. They also had rats and mice on the island, which are a problem because they're probably eating iguana eggs and juveniles. And Well, and attacking, yeah, as I say, yeah, juveniles, hatchlings, that sort of mm. stuff. They're not just, even if they don't eat them, they're still uh, potentially doing damage to them and lowering uh, survival. Yeah, so I had a bit of a theory about this, because they were also talking about the adults having um, bifurcated and wounded tails, right? Mm, yeah. So sometimes when an adult iguana's tail gets bitten off, the end gets bitten off. Um, we talked about bifurcation in geckos before on the podcast, but the tail will grow back split into two, so it'll basically have like a forked tail, um, which is quite a cool thing, you know, interesting. Two tails, weird. Don't know what the other iguanas think about it, whether the ones with that are held in higher esteem or not. No one can tell. But um, <laughs> take it as a oh, you've gone one on one with the, the with the evil raccoon lord and one <laughs> yeah. all gone away. Yeah, they still remember that raccoon. I mean, like it lives long in memory. Um, what was I even saying? Oh yeah, so uh, something about bifurcated tails. Yeah, so the um, I just had this. I like you know the rats are obviously biting the adults because lots of the adults had wounded tails, and then subsequently when. I mean, we're going to give the game away, but the the rats and mice were eradicated, right? Uh, by poison bait. And then the numbers of um, bifurcated and wounded tails decreased, as you'd expect, because no rats are nibbling them. But I wondered if maybe the rats were kind of doing like a cookie-cutter shark approach, where they were just having a nibble on the adult iguanas when they were asleep. And they knew they couldn't overpower or kill them. They would just have a bite out of them. And then when the iguana wakes up, they scamper away. I mean, possibly... Yeah. Like, you know, like ectoparasite type of behaviour. Maybe, or maybe they're just, you know, they're not thinking that sort of far forward with it, and they just, they find something edible, they have a little nibble, they go on and wakes up, oh, better leave, and then they just don't really think anything of it, and they think, oh, look, there's something else edible, have a little nibble, oh, it's woken up again. <laughs> yeah, I know. And there's no real learning to it, it's just it's just crazy luck. Yeah, maybe, but I think I, I I feel like it. Anyway, that I was trying to work out the term for something which does that nibbling, and I'm sure there is one, but I couldn't find it. Um, so if you know, it's not just a parasite. Well, I feel like I feel ectoparasite is something which feeds on the outside, right? But I yeah. just couldn't think of anything. I, I I'm sure I've heard a word which describes that taking a chunk and going, but I couldn't find it anywhere. But I um I actually read hmm. a paper about cookie cutter sharks, which was really interesting. Um, in the search for this knowledge and this guy got attacked by a cookie cat shark trying to swim from Hawaii to Maui uh, overnight and this cookie cat shark just took a big chunk out of his leg and uh, it's just disgusting it's like the perfect little cookie shaped meat sort of cylinder Disc. yeah it's horrible and the photos are so grisly okay. let's have a um had to have a skin graft from his thigh onto his calf. It's interesting as well because the cookie cat shark tried once while he was swimming. It got him in the sternum. And you can see there's like a little ring mark where it got its bottom teeth in but couldn't get in further. And then he freaked mm. out, swam over to his assist kayak. And then while he was sort of um, vertical in the water, it just chowed down it on his calf again. muscle. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Amazing sharks, though. Amazing sharks. They just wait until night time, creep up to the surface. Well, you know, not the surface, but like 100 metres down. And they wait until a big fish or a big cetacean swims past. They just take a chunk out of it. <laughs> <laughs> Off it goes. I respect that. I do respect that. Um, yeah. But if you want to read more about it's that. Just, that's very sustainable, really. It re as long as the thing doesn't bleed out. Yeah. Well, from the paper that I was reading, it seems like lots of fish are caught with these kind of telltale marks on them. So they usually survive. And, you know, seals, whales, whale sharks... Sharks, 
big fish. Whales are big enough to take it without worrying, right? Yeah, you can shave a bit of whale meat off. I don't know why humans didn't used to do that, to be honest. Rather than killing them, just catch them, shave a bit off, let them go again. Catch them again in a while. <laughs> um, yeah. Like whale liposuction or something like that, you know, for the blubber. Just get the blubber out. Then the whale gets a bit chilly for a while, but it grows back. Mm. <laughs> I'll put the paper in there. Supplementary feed them to, to, you know, boost the uh, blubber production. Yeah. Um, I'll put that paper in the show notes if anyone wants to read more about cookie cut sharks. It's amazing and it's open access. Um, yeah, so where are we at? We're at, we're on White Key and the rats and mice. And no, we're on Sandy Key. Sorry. With the White Key iguana. Sorry, Sandy Key. Um, yeah. And yeah, it's now 1999. The rats and mice and raccoon have all been eradicated using poison bait, um, which is a shame, but you know, it's for, it's for a good cause. And, um, they next move on to kind of removing the pine trees, which we talked about, the Australian pine trees. Um, the trouble with these is that yes. because they're big old trees, they outcompete the vegetation below and they start to change the structure of the habitat. And um, being as these are iguanas are herbivorous and they don't like making their nests in areas which have lots of pine needles, the pine trees were um, quite a hindrance to their success. So yeah, these scientists were cutting down the pine trees with the help of lots of volunteers by the sounds of it, applying some herbicide and, you know, trying to kill them that way. Because if you don't apply herbicide, apparently they sprout back in hundreds of different places. Um, yeah, which... I mean, it sounds like you're cutting your head off a hydra sort of thing, doesn't it? Mm. If you don't, if you don't dose it with something, it's just going to spread. You're just helping the spread by having tiny bits of root and whatever. Yeah, spread everywhere, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Same story here for lots of well, for some invasive plants like Japanese knotweed. You've got to be doing that kind of a thing with. Exactly, exactly the same. Yeah. Mm. So, do we want to talk about how talk about in the- 2005 that Australian pine? It was pretty much eradicated, but using methods that you might not think, you might not expect. Let's do it. Which is harking to the pirates in the beginning of the the episode, the title. So basically, this uh, Sandy Key was, uh, what's the right word? Not talent scouted, location scouted, that's the one, for um, Pirates of the Caribbean. And part of the, part of the, re- okay going to film this film in this place we're going to set it all up going to sort it all out but you're not allowed to do that sort of thing without some sort of environmental impact assessment or at least you'd hope that be the case um so relevant experts on the island these guys among others i suppose maybe they might be in all of them um basically put together a okay disney you can come on the island and film your film your film but You've got to do these little things alongside. Got to make sure everything uh, is done above board and properly so we're not impacting the iguanas. The iguanas are safe, not detrimentally harmed. And while you're at it, you know, you want a nice natural environment, not a bunch of garbage everywhere and Australian pine. Uh, Australian pine. So part of that contract, part of that environmental plan was that Disney helped with the removal of all the pine and cleaned up all the garbage and stuff like that, and had to follow super strict rules when it came to what was going on and off the island. Like things like no food on the island whatsoever, 
Uh, people didn't stay on the island. They had to stay in the boats offshore. Um, well, that's only because of how dangerous the iguanas are. <laughs> well, they will. They'll if they catch someone sleeping, they will. Uh, they'll go full raccoon on you. <laughs> they'll take, take you to shreds. <laughs> no, the 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 raccoons. The raccoons, the iguanas caused very little problems. They are herbivorous. I think a couple of times they had to be prodded away from some equipment because they were getting a bit over-curious. <laughs> but uh, I don't think they caused any issues whatsoever. There's some great pictures in the paper of like the crew of the film just sort of doing stuff. And then there's just these iguanas nearby, like lingering around. Just curious. hanging out, just watching, watching the film production, you know. There's one quite cool behind-the-scenes photo as well, isn't there, of a... Uh, oh, in the water sword fight. Well, that's the thing. It's, it's it's a full you know it's a full Hollywood production. You can see the picture of the amount of boats and stuff they had set up offshore. I mean, the money going behind this thing is ridiculous. It's nice that uh, these guys were savvy enough to get a environmental sort of plan together that improved the island in the long term and not just like a short term. Don't change anything. Don't have an impact. But had the foresight to try and. Uh, or successfully, you know, they did shift some of that money into something that had a, a bit more of a legacy and uh, help out the iguanas long term. Yeah, fair play to Disney for getting stuck into that. It's cool. And the other thing we should mention is there's another group called the Global Insular Conservation Society, and they also assisted in the um, removal of the pines. So kudos where yes. kudos is due. Um, that was post uh, post filming, those guys came and maintained, maintained keeping the Australian pine down, right? Mm-hmm. Like a two two stage, yeah. What were they saying? Ninety five to ninety seven percent of the pines were removed uh, by twenty twelve, mid twenty twelve. That's pretty impressive. To get rid of an invasive species is no small task. No, it isn't. No, and they managed to get rid of nearly three, four actually, if you include the raccoon. Which I think you have to, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it sounds like it, the raccoon especially was having some pretty big impacts. Mm. Yeah, I think the raccoon was probably more damaging than the rats even by the sounds of it. He certainly played up. That's the fear factor though. That's 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 exactly what the raccoon wants you to think. Can you imagine these iguanas though? They've had hundreds of generations of no predators really. Probably the odd bird. And then suddenly there's this raccoon. Mental. So should we talk about the population growth of the... Of the uh, Iguanas. Yeah. So by two, so we said in 1997 there was between 112 and 168 individuals. Yeah. Then by 2008, following all the hard work by the uh, authors of this paper and um, their associates, they estimated there was 2,208 to 3,312 iguanas. Um, yeah. Um, I'm yeah. I'm not super confident in the way they estimate. No, neither. I don't think size. they. I don't think they were either. Were they? They. Um... Um, but the point is, and the point remains, big increase. Yeah. Because just the numbers of individuals they are seeing dramatically increases. So um, I'm assuming Ben, the reason you say that you're not that confident in their estimates is because um, they themselves had said that the detectability increased, so they were more likely to see iguanas because they became less afraid of them, both because of their presence and also because of the presence of tourists. But they And there's just more of them too. Yeah. So naturally detectability is gonna increase just by sheer numbers. Um well, yeah, uh Well, 
that's not necessarily an issue in in like raw detectability though, is it? It's just because the individual detectability is still the same. Individual detectability is the same, but they were doing it in a way that it was like a detectability across the entire population, wasn't it? Oh right, okay. But um, because they just multiplied it up from previous studies, detectability estimates. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. So they. But so if I I think it does. I think it would need to have some sort of. If you were if you were modeling this, you would want to model detectability dependent on. No, you couldn't do it on numbers because then you'd have two unknowns. So that wouldn't make sense. You'd have to do it on something else. But basically, they said their detectability went up, but they didn't increase the detectability yes. in their model estimate. So um, they might be inflating how many there actually are. But I mean, it's a difference between thousands and hundreds or hundred. So um, well, in the actual actual count they got. You had a count of like 34 in 1997 up to nearly 300 in uh, 2008. Yeah. So just by raw numbers, you've still got that increase, even if the estimates are a little bit uh, shaky. Yeah, there's definitely irrefutable evidence that their conservation actions have pretty much saved this species. In fact, there's not pretty much. Yes. They like undoubtedly have saved this species, I would say. Um, yeah. Which is why this paper is incredible, because it really does catalogue you know from 1980 first visit to the island oh these iguanas are chilling then 1996 oh hang on a minute these iguanas are not doing well there's barely any left and then by the time 2008 rolls around having eradicated numerous species and implemented some um, monitoring bang the species is saved you know they've now got a very healthy population there's no damaging invasive species left certainly not in any numbers that they're going to have much of a negative effect um, mm. but you really couldn't ask for more yeah I mean the, it, it's a really nice success story mm. did we mention that White Key is in the Bahamas we did didn't we we did yeah good yes. <laughs> White Key's in the Bahamas <laughs> well this is this is this is Sandy Key we're talking about though why do I keep calling it White Key it's because of because the it's the White Key Iguana oh, I'm sure if um yeah, well, I'm just. I think they also call it the Sandy Key Iguana. So I'm just gonna. Uh, sorry, the White Key, the Sandy Key Iguana. So I'm just gonna call it that. <laughs> yeah, they do. Sandy Key Rock Iguanas have returned from the brink of extinction. <laughs> Next time I'm on a sandy beach, I'll be like, "This is a white beach." <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the thing is, the beaches are really white. Yeah, they're beautiful. They're not like sand color. They're really, really pale. Yeah. Um, cool. Uh, I think we're ready to go on to the second one, are we? Unless you want to just quickly discuss how someone came and stole some, some iguanas in 2014. Oh, yeah, go on. Um, someone nicked some iguanas in 2014 and they were stopped by uh, UK uh, border patrol agents, I guess. Um, and then they they brought them back. Uh, where did they put them? They put them somewhere down San Salvador Island way, didn't they? Yes, they did. They put them on a new island. Um, yeah, because basically the actual iguanas had pit tags. Um, they were pit tagged back, pit tagged back in 2011, so they knew exactly where they came from. They were absolutely from uh, Sandy Key, um, but they took advantage of that opportunity to try a bit of translocation because the animals had already been massively stressed out. So, yeah, I mean, if they've already been on a plane. Yeah. Just put them on a different island, you know. Why put them back where they belong? <laughs> 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 
No, the iguanas uh, are like. Where were they? This is close though. No, it's like home. It's like home. What was it? It was another one of the exhumers. Oh no, no, no! Sorry, they didn't. They didn't translocate them as such. They took them to. They did take them to San Salvador Island, but they took them to the research um, and iguana conservation center, which is where they're trying to build, um, like a. Uh, iguana arc sort of situation where they've got they've got some that are suitable for translocation um, but uh, the iguanas didn't really do well being transported out from the Bahamas and then back again so so are they not alive anymore well I think nine yeah nine survived um, and then they were put on it okay there we go here's the story 13 stolen one died on the way to to London, twelve coming back to the Bahamas, but a further three died within twenty-four hours of getting back. They were ID'd as being coming from Sandy Key. They were kept at the research station for a bit, and then the remaining nine were taken to an uninhabited key uh, to establish a new population. And the story end there. That's all the information I have. Be curious to know how that um, translocation turned out in the future, because um, as we're going to get onto in the next paper, these translocations aren't always successful. No. So yeah, it'd be interesting. I guess it depends a lot on the um, island they've put them on. Yeah, or just luck, um, as we'll we'll talk about in a second. Which actually we could talk about right now, if you're willing to introduce the next paper. Yeah, so this one is by Hayes, Crutchfield, Wasilewski, Rothfuss and Carter. Conservation of the endangered San Salvador rock iguanas, Cyclura valii raleii, population estimation, invasive species control, translocation and head starting. Published in Herpcom Bio. Hmm. Similar sort of situation. We're just talking about different iguanas, different key. Yes. And actually different invasive species too. Because here in San Salvador... San Salvador Island, sorry. Uh, there are fire ants, and there are dogs and cats and pigs. No, I thought it was pigs. Oh, and cactus moths. I thought that and rats. Did you read that scientific name? What is it? Bostorus, and think it was a pig. Oh, that's cow. It is cow. Yeah, I thought it was pig. But sus isn't sus pig. I don't know. Sus species. Sus and boss. <laughs> <laughs> Let me have a look. Um, sus. Yeah, so we're we're still in the Bahamas for this one. Um, San Salvador Island. And this is another rock Sus is pig. Sus is pig. Okay, that's cool. Yes, but boss you're right. Cow. Boss, boss, boss Taurus is cow. Yeah, Taurus, I mean, it's like the Pokemon, isn't it? Yeah, or the Zodiac sign. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Please talk to me in terms I understand and that are actually vaguely scientific. Right. Yes, it is the Pokemons. <laughs> yeah, it's the Pokemon of all tales. That looks like a cow. Safari Zone special. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, they're another species. I mean, they're another big rock iguana. You know, all these iguanas are kind of big, bulky um, terrestrial lizards. That uh, yeah, they're, some of them are quite nicely coloured. Um, yeah, some of them are a bit bluish. You know, they've got little spikes on their backs. Um, they're just really heavily built vegetation eaters aren't they um mm. 
And these ones, the San Salvador rock iguanas, are, they used to have a much wider range, as we discussed earlier, and now they're largely confined to four tiny offshore keys and two islets within these hypersaline lakes. So the island of San... That's something worth talking about. Yeah. I, right there. I looked at it on Google Earth. San Salvador looks like one That's of the exactly coolest what places. I did. Yeah. It's like this island, and then the majority of the interior, I would say, is like what appears to be these big green lakes, which are obviously very salty from mm. being inundated and then you know evaporation taking place um so they they basically wind up being really really salty and the iguanas live on islands in the middle of these lakes it's just nuts which is crazy it's absolutely nuts it's a it's a crazy looking set of islands slash island yeah Yeah. um but this san salvador is only about eight kilometers long and um, it's another limestone rock island, although it's got a bit more diversity of habitats. So there's some mangroves and some different kinds of vegetation. So it's got a little bit more, and obviously these insular lakes. So it's got a bit more going on than um, Sandy Key, but uh, yes, but it's still you know it's it's just it's still a small island in the Bahamas. And um, as you said, Ben, there's loads of invasive species, you know, dogs and cats and stuff like that, fire ants, cows. But they chose to focus their efforts on rats, cactus moths, and Australian pines. So it's worth uh, talking a little bit about the moths and what their impact is. Yeah. Because uh, those guys, they love to eat prickly pears. Or even if they don't love to eat prickly pears, what they're doing to the prickly pears is making uh, them smaller and fewer of them. Which is a big deal for these iguanas because the rock iguanas love to forage. Well, they preferentially forage where these prickly pears are. I'm not entirely sure if they're eating the prickly pears um, or not. But the point is, when the moths are present, the prickly pears are fewer in number and smaller. Less prickly pears, bad for iguanas, therefore moths. Invasive moths, bad for iguanas. It's crazy, isn't it? Like, you'd never foreseen that introducing a moth would have a damaging impact on an iguana species. Nope. That's the reason we should all study invasive species, guys. <laughs> or introduce species. you just got to be careful with these things. It's, it's, there's so many different ways ecosystems can, you know, a species in an ecosystem can cascade through and change things in totally unexpected ways. Mm. Yeah. There's definitely, there's definitely a project on the um, influence of fire ants as well. I wonder what they're like. Because mm. those things are ruthless. Well, isn't it? Isn't there a species of ant that are absolutely destroying... Um, Christmas Island. Crab species. Yeah, is it Christmas Island, is it? I think so. I think there's ants on Christmas Island. But, yeah, there's lots of places where ants are invasive. I Actually, Reunion Island as well has got an ant problem at the moment. Hmm. Um, imagine it's very tough to control that too. Yeah. Without hideous collateral damage to native uh, native uh, insects. I Yeah, there's a PhD going on about it, actually. I think because reunion that that silver bullet. Yeah, because reunion's yeah. got its own endemic ants as well. So I think it's like ant on ant combat. Oh my gosh, ant wars. Yeah, which um, oh yeah, and there's a YouTube channel called Ants Canada, where um, this guy sets up like ginormous terrariums and then has an ant colony move in, and then he just like documents their lifestyle. And it's fascinating to watch. And sometimes he'll introduce... I thought you were going to say set up a giant terrarium and then send two ant colonies in. Yeah, no, from... he does do that. He does, <laughs> Just a walk... he does exactly oh my gosh. that. And then he documents it. And it, it's absolutely fascinating the things these ants get up to. Honestly, like, 
just it beggars the ultimate thunderdome it beggars belief it really does there's one episode where there's a um he doesn't know why but his ant colony keeps on deteriorating like nothing he does he keeps augmenting the population and it's just constantly at this like really really low sort of uh, number and he can't work out mm. why he just doesn't know why and then he suddenly one day he sees something moving under the soil and he's like what was that anyway it goes on and on and eventually he catches the sight of this culprit and it's a brahmini blind snake that just came in in his soil oh my god <laughs> of course it is but the, footage, the old flatterpot snake yeah the footage he the gets the decimator of ants yeah honestly <laughs> the, the footage he gets of this um, brahmini blind snake is one of the coolest things I've ever seen literally like just watching it it's basically the plot of um, Holes Tremors 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 I always get those two films mixed up I might have even talked about this on the podcast before I don't know but anyway go and check out that video of Ants, Ants, Ants Canada it's called uh, the, the Blind Snake one. Oh, it's fantastic I learned so Mate, much about you're going to have to put that link in the, in the show notes I'll find it yeah I'll find it yeah but yeah his other videos are fascinating as well like just yeah you just never get that insight and he's an incredible videographer as well like these close-up high definition images of ants just going about their business narrated by like a ant expert is absolutely fascinating brilliant what good stuff yeah um that's an aside though <laughs> that is a hell of an aside yeah. really um, because we're talking about moths yes. and they're not very much like ants yeah um there's not much there's not much they could do about the moths um at the time of writing but uh, apparently there are different methods being investigated to see if uh, the moths can be controlled. Um, did I write down the possible ways? Um, oh, like pheromonal traction, uh, releasing sterile individuals. It's, it's pretty usual stuff, to be honest. Um, maybe some sort of parasite that could smash the moths. Who knows? Just put a light up. Who knows? But there are there are, there is effort. <laughs> Hmm? Just put a light out. They get suckers for light, aren't they? Yeah, but the problem is that get the other moths too, the good moths. Oh, God, nightmare. That's always the problem with invasive species control is the collateral damage. That's why you've got to be careful with the poisoning of even rats and stuff because, you know, predatory bird will take those and uh, then they'd be poisoned. You get this horrible bioaccumulation problem. You've got to be real careful. Really, really careful. Or one of the slightly more amusing things that they did during the, the rat control of this so they had their little bait stations out on the ground, um, but they weren't really working because all these hermit crabs would just crawl into the trap and uh, <laughs> just chill there. And then the rat couldn't get to the food because it's just shoved filled with hermit crabs. So they had to <laughs> had to raise these traps off the ground so the rats could climb in, but the hermit crabs wouldn't. It worked though, didn't it? Oh, it worked very well, yeah. Mm. But it's just the, the idea of having your traps thwarted by uh, huge numbers of hermit crabs is just... You'd never think that would happen. <laughs> it's not on your radar. <laughs> um, so they that was on low key. They did that, didn't it? Low key. It's quite a funny name. Um, but they en ended up managing to uh, eradicate rats on that island, and none have been mm. seen up to 2013. Because this San Salvador rock iguana is actually found on a few more islands. So this this paper details a, a bit more, a few different things going on. Um, but one of the things they talk about is the two translocation attempts that have been um, used. Well, they talk about two attempts to translocate the iguanas, don't they? From um, from San Salvador out. Well, where were they to and from? One was to. Well, the, the trick is, is there aren't there aren't any on San Salvador Island itself. That it's all on the keys that make up the sort of San Salvador Island 
complex, I guess. There is a, there is a few um, on the mainland, but they're like they don't think they're a viable population anymore. Oh right, and they weren't going to put any more effort no. into that because of the number of invasive species yeah. and you having to be getting rid of cows and all and sorts of stuff. And if you stuff were to... like that, like it's just really yes. Urban. Well, this is why we were talking about prioritizing conservation. Yeah, focusing on populations that they can do a good job protecting and keeping safe. Yeah, yeah. So the first translocation was undertaken. This wasn't a legal translocation. This was kind of a you know, shoot from the hip translocation, whether or not it was even for conservation purposes or whether it was just for the novelty value of having some of these iguanas. It so- to, to me, it sounds like someone who liked iguanas and thought, they'd do well over here. Yeah. People love iguanas. They could feed them. They can, you know, have their children run around and play with them. It'll be great. <laughs> yeah, so... That's that's what I imagine. Yeah, anyway. I think so. <laughs> I think that's, that was the impression I got. So basically, the... Um, there's Club Med, which is a big hotel thing. I don't know why it's called Club Med, because we couldn't be further from the Med. But um, I guess that's just the name of the chain. And No, the uh, Med stands for mediocre. <laughs> uh, and this one took place in, in or before 2000. And basically, some Club Med employees got six or more adult iguanas. They don't know what genders they were. And they basically took them from Green Key, and they released them into the resort grounds on the main island. Um, it didn't go super well. Like the they they survived. <laughs> they survived for a bit. They got big though. They, got, they grew they got to gargantuan big. size. Yeah, and um, yeah, this is something I wanted to mention. Like the all that fattening resort food. Yeah, well, basically the resort had. I mean, people were probably feeding them, and also it probably had because it's non-native vegetation. It's probably a lot richer than what the iguanas were used to. And so what happened... Potentially, yeah. yeah the iguanas just grew to gargantuan sizes. They were absolute units. They were monsters. And, um, well, I mean, it's a shame because that didn't seem to help them survive. I mean, they did breed and they did reproduce, but um, a few years later on, they went back to check and they were just like, yeah, the iguanas are pretty much gone. So that didn't really work. Um, but then the there was another translocation which was actually made by the um, authors with proper per- proper permission from the Bahamas Ministry of Agriculture and they trans... Probably the t- professional translocation. Yeah, the professional That's one. Probably a decent term for <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And um, this was 14 adult iguanas, six males, eight females and they translocated them from Green Key to Cut Key in February of 2005. Um, yep. But again, like, they don't seem to have been thriving on Cut Key where they've been put... Um, They've just, I don't think they've seen any evidence of reproduction, have they? They've just seen, like, they see iguanas, no. but they don't think that they're um, successfully reproducing. So for whatever reason, that translocation, although it was done professionally, hasn't been a success either so well, far. There well, was, there was a suggestion that there was a small number of rats on the island. Um, although they didn't, they saw, what, did they saw a rat at 2012 or something, like after... Yeah. After the translocation, but like before there, there hadn't been any, hadn't seen any evidence of rats. So it might, their suggestion was that because it's such a small population, only a small number of rats would actually be required to subdue that population. Right. Uh, so that might have something to do with it. Yeah. It's difficult. Very difficult. It is. Yeah. So there was two failed translocations. However, um, what's the overall message of this one? Did they get better? Did it improve? Uh, no, but it helped work out what was, you know, these didn't work, so it's narrowing out some options. Yeah. I think the other thing that's worth mentioning for these translocations is because they're so small, they're so few individuals, because you don't want to risk a large amount of individuals, because, you know, what we're talking about is a 
species that has very few individuals anyway. You don't want to take a chunk of that and risk translocating them. Because you also get things rolling through like hurricanes, which have been known to completely wipe out entire populations on small keys. So there's no point translocating a bunch of individuals, putting the source population at greater risk because you're reducing it, and then having them wiped out in a hurricane next year. There has to be some sort of uh, consideration of risk versus reward for this sort of stuff. And I think that's what's really motivated this establishment of what I mentioned previously, this... uh, San Salvador Iguana Conservation Centre. Precisely. So the idea there is to build a population that can be used for translocations while not impacting or taking from the current world populations that already have low numbers. So you've got to keep them safe and keep them as you know, secure and healthy as possible. You don't want to be taking from them if you can avoid it. So that's the whole idea of this head-starting facility uh, on San Salvador. Yeah, and they have been breeding. They've been trying to breed, and they've had at least one juvenile, but they've been having trouble with the pens that they've built. So, um, yeah, that facility is kind of in a bit of an uncertain state, um, mm. which, is, which is obviously very unfortunate. But... Um, you know they've got it open and it is open to visitors so they're um you know more people are learning about the iguanas which is obviously a big thing especially um if you can kind of galvanize local people and tourists to you know contribute something um i think you'd be hard pressed to walk around a conservation center see the actual iguanas and then not at least donate a few a few pounds if you're all the way in the bahamas to um to their conservation. So, yes. well, they haven't had the same success with this um, Rileyi Rileyi as they have with uh, Cristatus that we talked about before. They have kind of got some measures in place which have the potential in the future to kind of leapfrog into successful conservation efforts. Um, I think so. Yeah, I think the point is that they're setting up the groundwork here for more extensive work in the future. Yeah, they need to be more aggressive with the invasive species. Um and yeah, they've got the head starting thing, which isn't re- well. At least as of twenty thirteen, I haven't. We haven't got more update. If you know, actually, if you've got more up to date information, let us know, and we can talk about it in the next episode. Um, but yeah, so it seems as though it's kind of been a bit hampered so far. But they've got the stuff in place to to um, to really do more into the future. And it's like you said, Ben. You know, large storms are a massive problem for this species um and they could easily be wiped out so yeah it's difficult isn't it like if a natural disaster wipes out a species i suppose it wouldn't have ever been in a position to be wiped out by a natural disaster if it weren't for the fact that humans have already completely decimated their population so you can't really argue that that's some kind of act of god that can't be avoided because it would only have actually had the power to cause that damage in conjunction with what humans have been up to so yeah i think yes and then you have the whole additional uh climate shifts which are human uh, driven as well, you know, increasing the frequency of these storms or the intensity of these storms. You, yeah, there's no way of washing your hands um, of the fate of these iguanas. No, no. So, yeah, Riley Eye, Riley Eye, cool iguana found on and around San Salvador Island in the Bahamas. It's in a bit of trouble. So, um, hopefully, though, they'll have success with this one as they have in the, uh, in the other one. Yeah, I think so. I think so. There's a lot of there's a lot of people that are doing a lot of good work. Yeah, yeah. and uh, they're very charismatic too. So yeah, they are cool. So yeah, that is the well, at least the uh, Cyclura Riley complex relatively well discussed. 
Um, yeah, thanks, Brandon, for suggesting that those two papers. Yeah, yeah, it was fun reading about it. Mm. It's nice to see a, at least one extremely successful conservation story because so often we cover things which are pretty bleak or, you know, it'll be a species that's just been described and they're like, oh, it's probably just going to disappear. So it's nice to actually... <laughs> yeah, or the fate's unknown or something like that, isn't it? There's always a little bit of bitterness to the story. Yeah, exactly. That was just pure pure goodness, that first one. Yeah, it was. It was good. So, yeah, enjoyable stuff. So, um, yeah, that takes us on to Species of the Bye Week. Wait. <laughs> Wait. What have we got? Wait. Um. <laughs> uh, we have a likely microendemic new species of terrestrial iguana, genus Calaridon, from Madagascar. Because there's always new stuff coming out of Madagascar. Yes, indeed. Uh, it's published in Zoo Taxa in 2015 by Morales, Glor, Ratsuavina, and Vensis. Um, yeah, so quite a special type of iguana. Yeah. So prior to this, there was only one species in the genus Calaridon, which was Calaridon madagascariensis, which, as the name suggests, is from Madagascar. Um well, the whole the whole genus is endemic to Madagascar, um, but that first one, Madagascariensis, is a terrestrial species commonly observed on the sandy soils of either forested or bushy areas of the southern and western regions of Madagascar, where it's like pretty arid to semi-arid. You know, it's medium arid. Um, <laughs> medium arid. <laughs> you know how I mean. Medium. On a scale of one to arid, I'd say. It's <laughs> Half an arid. On a scale of one to medium arid, parched. <laughs> parched is probably very arid, actually. But yeah, so um, this new species is, again, it's, well, as the title alludes, it's supposedly a microendemic. So um, it's only known from a really small area adjacent to the western slopes of the ando Hahala Massif. And um, three sites are known. Um, and yeah, they were finding these iguanas during the day on sandy soils among bushes which were adapted to dry environments. So it's, you know, it's pretty arid, pretty arid little creature. Hmm. What else can we say about it? What do we want to say about it? What does it um, like? Well, it's quite small. Uh, what do we got? Where's my... Oh, I've lost... I've lost my uh, measurements. <laughs> He's lost the plot. I've lost the plot. I, I see the words a rather small size, but that's not a measurement. Oh, here we go. Snout variant length of 56 millimetres. Really long. With a tail of 87. Hmm. Really long tails. Yeah. And they are sort of greyish. They are... Oh, this is quite complicated to explain, actually. What, the appearance of They've got a sort of... Yeah, because it's quite a complicated pattern, isn't it? It really is, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So I guess the base colour is kind of like a sort of sandy brown, um, but they've got lots of white highlights, white speckles, some darker bars, some sort of grey chunks. They're all kinds of crazy patterning. Um, and they've got little bits of yellow. At least some of them have little bits of yellow on the shoulder. Yeah, maybe maybe the sort of top pattern is not... I don't know, it's like a greyer version of what brown anolis lizards have, maybe? 
I'm trying to think of a good analogy that people might be familiar with. And failing quite miserably. I don't know, yeah. It just looks like the kind of generic spray-painted, dry-brushed pattern you get on toy lizards. Yes. There you go. Perfect. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, I mean, they're pretty neat looking. The one thing that we both noticed about this when we were talking before the show is uh, the parietal eye is very prominent. And I don't think it gets enough mention. Mm. I mean, this thing is freakishly obvious, right? It's got a blatantly obvious third eye directly in the centre of its head. And... I I think the reason it isn't mentioned in detail is because it's not diagnostic. But I just think it's a damn shame because it's mental. <laughs> it's it's crazy. It's the most obvious third eye I ever did see. And um, yeah, it literally just looks like there's an eye in the middle of its head. Um, obviously, it's not an eye in the same sense that the eye on the sides of the head are. It's an eye. You know, it's the parietal eye. So it's just, you know, catching a bit of light, helping to control circadian rhythms what else do parietal eyes do? They kind of... Look cool. They yeah. look quite fancy, don't they? Yeah. It's... Uh, Serious style style points. Yeah. Oh, apparently it's like a little... Um, yeah, it affects hormone production and um, thermoregulation and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it tells the lizard certain things that it needs to be doing. But it's mad. It's crazy. They've just got this third eye. Um, and it really is one of the most obvious ones I've seen. So it's worth finding this paper yeah. just to see the eye in all its glory well I think what you can do is just search for pretty much any iguanid out of Madagascar and you'll see quite a few with a distinctive distinctive eye Um, I think most of the I was going to say Oplurids but they're a subfamily aren't they they're not actually Oplurids Um, Oplurinines I guess (laughs) yeah Yes. Is that the right term? Aplurinins. Aplurinins. That's not as fun to say as aplurids. But yes, those guys have... You'll see it. There's pictures of all all sorts of ones. You don't have to necessarily find this species is all I'm saying. Yeah, there's other species with the eye. I think Chuataras you can see it on, although, you know, they're different. So don't get them mixed up with iguanas. (laughs) Can you even see it? (laughs) They're not even iguanas. Yeah. Can you see it? I don't know. No, I don't. you You can't see it on a Chuatara, actually, I don't think. But it is there. Um, oh, two towers are so weird. Yeah, <laughs> they're so chunky. Um, yeah, so it's got this third eye, and it's a cool new species. And it was named Claridon. Is it Steinkampi? Steinkampi, yeah. yeah. Which is named after Martin Steinkamp, who is big dog in supporting biodiversity research and nature conservation through the Biopact initiative. You know what's, so just completely changing subject, you know what's also cool about this and the study in general is that it seems to be pointing towards this sort of micro-endemic hotspot down there in this this southern area of the island because there are a few other studies they list towards the end that are suggesting genetic differentiation in uh, a couple of other species found there like a pleurus saxicola, another iguanid, and a Trachylepus vatu, or vatu, uh, which is a type of skink, and maybe even in a few uh, gecko species. So there's some interesting stuff coming from the south of the island in terms of microendonism, but I suppose that can be said for a lot of the areas in Madagascar as well. So Yes, that's quite cool. It's cool. It's quite exciting. Yeah. And this one's a little bit more colourful than the um, other Caladon species. It's like one way of telling them apart. Mm. So, 
nicer nicer belly coloration um uh oh we have a little bit about uh iucn potential category they say it should probably be data deficient (laughs) (laughs) well that makes sense yeah (laughs) that makes sense yeah but But, uh yeah but anything that's micro endemic is going to be kind of bits bits bit on the sketchy side so yeah well there's so much more work left to be done isn't there so quite possibly um it might be yeah it might be in a bit of trouble um well that's all i got yeah cool so uh calaridon steinkampi brand new species yep. of iguana i can't believe we actually managed to find a new species of iguana to talk about on the iguana episode i really didn't expect that well there was there was somewhere in this paper they were saying that there hasn't been a new uh, there hasn't been a new a plur no a plur <laughs> I can't do it. I can't do the subfamily thing. It doesn't work in my brain. But the point is there hasn't been one since, what, 1907 or something crazy? Oh, that's cool. I found it in the paper. Oh, good. Well, last description of an apurine was in 1900. And that is, they're of the, they're in their own, they're in their own family, are they? Oh, subfamily apurine. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, subfamily. I think it's, I think some people have jumped it up to separate family at times. Wikipedia does, uh, <laughs> for what it's worth. Yeah. Well, there we go. So at some point it has been considered its own family, but these guys are treating it as a subfamily. I don't know what's what's what. I'm not going to get into that argument, but uh, it's a cool new species regardless. Yeah, well, I mean, all that is is, you know... I mean, they're just words, aren't they? They're just, you know... They're just words. Just words. You're right. Um... The lizard's still the lizard. Exactly. What is a species anyway? It's just a rainbow of life. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, uh, yeah, that's it. New species, uh, cool new species yep. of iguana. Um, yeah, and that's our episode in iguanas. So, have we got any other business? There's one thing we should discuss. Yes. Um, we got a new Patreon. So, thank you very much. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Thank you very much to Scott Weiss. Um, Thank you. Yeah, so Scott, he'd obviously listened to our episode on musk turtles, which was the last one. And um, I started to bang on, and I think we were both curious, actually, about what soft-shelled turtles actually feel like. And neither of us had ever felt one. Nope. Scott has felt one. <laughs> and he's got he's got the lowdown. <laughs> yeah, so Scott is a veterinary technician, and he has... If he says they feel like flannels, I'm going to lose it. <laughs> uh He's, yeah, no, he said they, um, what is it? He said he's had experience mostly regarding the spiny soft-shelled turtle, which is Apollone spinifera. And he said, to me, they have a slick, rubbery feel to their shells when wet, although many people describe them as having a leather-like feel. He said, I can see that, especially when not in water, the skin feels like a soft leather. Interesting. That makes me want to touch one even more. Soft leather. Yeah. Sounds great. Um, and then he also sent us a photo of a soft-shelled turtle in the vet room because uh, the clinic he works in has some um, affiliation with the Conservation Project. I shared the video on our Facebook page about a week ago. Um, and anyway, yeah, he's holding one and it's only a juvenile, but this thing's massive. And he's, you know, they get, I think it's like 50 centimetres across they get to or 50 centimetres carapace Ooh. length. So, yeah, 30 or 40, 50. But yeah, basically they're big, they're big, big turtles. And... Um, yeah, it's cool. So thank you very much, Scott, for sharing that. And um, Yeah, big thank you. Yeah, if you're interested in the work he's up to, uh, I shared a video on our Facebook page a little while ago. And it is... 
Yeah, there's a thing on the Cleveland Museum of Natural History website, which I shared a link to, and I'll share it again right now so that everyone can go and learn a little bit more about what um, what it is that Scott's involved with, which looks really cool. They basically... Um, it does. You know, any turtles that are injured or anything like that, they'll help them out. Um, so, yeah, it looks cool. Uh, anything else? I think there was some sort of correction to do with the species as a bi-week. Was there not? Uh... A correction to do with our species in the bio week. Weren't there some uh, doubts suggested about the legitimacy of the split? Uh, yeah, Mark Schertz got in touch and said it's been a bit controversial because... Um, right, okay. There wasn't much in the way of genetic evidence for the split. If anything, I think actually the paper was just morphological data, um, which neither of us with picked the, up with on. the splodges. Yeah. Uh, no, it's probably because we were too busy uh, thinking about musk turtles, to be honest. Yeah, so um, apparently it's been controversial. Mark didn't elaborate, um, but yeah, some people are, you know, I mean, Mark knows his stuff, so, you know, there's obviously it a little is, bit of contention. It is worth bringing up, actually, just in general, is when we do the species of the bi weeks, we're not, we're not putting too much of a critical eye to them because neither of us are that way trained. And uh, I feel like it's quite hard to put the eye to them without having a little bit of a look-see into the, into the data and just how much they have and things like that. So, Yeah, that said, though, we do appreciate it, yeah. when our listeners do know it. <laughs> oh, massively so. Yeah. yeah, fantastic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, thanks, Mark. That one just, I guess, if you're thinking about soft-shell turtles in, um, you know, South Asia, South Southeast Asia, bear in mind that that, particular taxon not all taxonomists are buying it apparently which you know that goes for a lot of taxonomy a lot of the time doesn't it because it is always changing in some way and partly it has to change because the animals are changing constantly because that's just life Mm -hmm. deep so yeah that's our uh, that's our episode on cyclura and um, mm. like I said, if you want to read more about these or other iguanas, check out the issue of Herpcon Bio. Um, follow the links in our show notes. It'll take you there. Um, yeah. Excellent. Well, so apologies for it being a little bit of a later episode, but uh, hope to, I was going to say, see people next next fortnight, but that makes no sense because it's a podcast and you don't see people. I hope they can't see us. <laughs> It would be weird. Uh, yeah, so anyway, thank you very much for listening. If you want to get in touch with us, you can. Herphighlights at gmail.com, facebook.com slash herphighlights. We tweet collectively at herphighlights. We also tweet individually. We're both linked on our Twitter thing there. Um, if you want to be a patron and have your own episode topic, you can do that. Just Google Herp Highlights Patreon. We're very grateful to all our existing and ongoing patrons. Um, massively grateful yeah yeah you can also buy t-shirts which are pretty damn cool the king cobra one's been pretty popular um and which is unsurprising being as it's ace and uh yeah that's about it so yeah i think so i think thank you for listening yeah thanks a lot
When is, well, how does a seagull's day start? Do they wake up and all sort of get, gather together and get hyped? Is there like some kind of like... Yeah, they they can just sense chips. <laughs> That's what wakes them up. Yeah, they do love chips. Oh, there's chips on the floor somewhere, I know it. Oh. Now off they go. Ah, oh, seagulls. 